Let's pray. Father in heaven, our, our great and most basic and profound desire in this moment is to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd speaking through this page of Holy Scripture. Lord Jesus, you have promised that my sheep hear my voice. And so this morning, in a unique way, in a special way, I ask that you would be heard on this topic. Lord, in many ways, it's, it's a strangely divisive issue to take up the topic of Israel in the context of the church. It ought not to be. And I pray that you would um, help us to see what's really here in our Bibles. Help us just to follow the contours of this passage and to see how what Jesus is saying is in, of a peace and harmony with the rest of the vision of Scripture for this ancient covenant people. Lord, this matters. This matters for our mission, and it, it matters doubly if we are not Israelites here in this room. For only insofar as you are faithful to the promises to them can we anticipate that you would be faithful in your promises to us. Come now, Lord Jesus, and, and provide the gift of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would fill us with your Spirit as we hear your promises and, and see your word and walk away changed. May we know more of Jesus and what is at his heart this morning. And may we be transformed by it for the sake of our mission this week in the West Tonka area and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin this morning on a bit of a, a personal note that I hope might be of some encouragement and some orientation to you as we approach this particular topic together today. As a number of you are aware, I am a person, I am someone with an interest in and a passion for and a love of God's ancient covenant people, Israel. I am unapologetic about the fact that my heart beats fast for the Jewish people. And what's interesting about this is that this has not always been the case. In fact, my enthusiasm for Israel and for biblical prophecy, for eschatology, what the Bible says about the end times, has really only come along rather recently in my life, the last 36 months at, at best, three years. Which is to say, I wasn't raised this way in my family of origin. I wasn't trained this way in the seminary, uh, for which I'm very grateful of all of the tools that I got there. And even after 10 years of expository preaching in this pulpit, these weren't convictions that I preached, for they weren't convictions that I held. I make mention of that so that you might be encouraged that as we all continue to walk with the Lord and to read our Bibles and to grow in the Christian faith and learn from the wisdom of others, lo and behold, we grow, right? For some of you, I'm just getting up to speed this morning. I'm going to say some things that you wished I had said 13 years ago in this pulpit. Others of you, this is going to be like a thunderbolt. This is going to be like a thunderclap from heaven. You don't think these things, and these aren't convictions that are native to your soul. Well, some truths arrive early in our walk with the Lord and foundationally. Other truths show up later, even though they were there all along in the text. Uh, take, for example, our text this morning. So, 
This morning, you're likely to hear some excitement and see some animation from me on this issue, and it is the excitement and animation of a recent convert. I am incapable of cool and detached and disinterested analysis of this topic, uh, much as many of your kids are this time of year as they contemplate the next three months on their calendar, right? Um, Memorial Day weekend, summer right around the corner. I don't know about you, but there is some genuine euphoria building under our roof right now with T-minus four days left or something like that. Uh, Married as I am to a first-grade teacher and a a couple of school-aged kids, talk to my wife and children. There is no apathy about this upcoming season, I assure you. They are ready to take it on. And that's how I felt about the text in front of me this morning. We have been in Luke for a year and a half, and I have been biding my time and looking forward to an opportunity to unfold this paragraph, chomping at the bit all week for this paragraph. So, what should a Christian's view of Israel be? What is a Christian position about the identity of and the prospects of salvation for Israel? To say nothing of the fact that you turn on any national or international newscast today, doesn't matter where you look, And you're likely to see the eyes of the world riveted on this little nation. It's in the news quite everywhere, quite literally everywhere we look. Why all the attention? Less than 9 million people living in a geography that is about the size of New Jersey. Why all the attention? Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, the Jewish people seem to be at the epicenter of global concerns. Why is that? Wouldn't you like to begin to have some tools to be able to sort some of this out? Wouldn't it be a gift to have some scriptural wisdom, some sturdy, steady, go-to, trustworthy convictions from the Bible that would assist us in developing Christian convictions about Israel? I think it would be, and so here's where we can start. If we desire to have Christian convictions about Israel, we are wise to consider Christ's convictions about Israel. Right? That's not going on on a limb, is it? it? Stands to reason, if we desire to have Christian convictions about Israel, we are wise to consider Christ's convictions about Israel. In fact, I would go further than that. If our convictions about Israel are contrary to or on a crash course with Christ's convictions about Israel then we have the wrong convictions about Israel. Amen? If we currently experience apathy toward or indifference about or unconcern with reference to Israel, then we especially need to hear what Jesus would say to us in this moment. Because I'll tell you what, anti-Semitism is not the biggest problem in the church today when it comes to this topic. You know what it is? It's apathetic Semitism. People just don't care when they really ought to. This matters. Israel matters. And if we desire to have Christian convictions about Israel, we are wise to consider Christ's convictions about Israel. So, three rock-solid biblical truths that every Christ follower ought to hold about God's ancient covenant people. Three rock-solid biblical truths every Christ follower ought to hold about God's ancient covenant people. These are going to sound a lot like the Apostle Paul, but that's because Paul got them from Jesus. Number one, Not all Israel is Israel. That's the first point today. Not all Israel is Israel. Please follow along with me and I'll read verses 31 and 32 of 
of Luke 13. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. So Luke begins this particular narrative with the phrase, at that very hour. See that in verse 31? At that very hour. Is this significant? Yes, everything in Scripture is significant. One of the reasons I think it is significant is when we consider the broader context of today's passage. If you were here with us last week, or you can just cast your eyes about the last paragraph here in Luke's Gospel, you'll see where we're headed. Last week, we studied Jesus' revelation to the Jews of his day that the future kingdom would be filled, would be packed from back to front with people from all around Israel. North, south, east, and west, the kingdom is going to be filled with the nations, with the Gentiles. So he says in verse 29 to them, people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. In this context, it's fascinating in verse 30, the last are the Gentiles. Some who are last is the Gentiles. The last will be first in the kingdom of God. And at the same time, first are the Jews themselves. And so he he sternly reminds them, though they have been accustomed to be at the front of the line as it relates to God's salvation blessings for millennia up to this point, they will now have to get in line behind the nations behind the Gentiles who will come to populate the kingdom first. The Gentiles who are last will be first. The Jews who are first will be last. Now, as we said said last week, don't take Jesus to mean lost. He doesn't say lost. He says last. And I think the idea behind Luke including this at this very next paragraph in verses 31 to 35 is a reminder that this discussion isn't over. Not, Not by a long shot. In their unbelief, the Jews are coming dangerously close to having the kingdom door of the banquet slammed in their faces. That's what's so offensive to them right now, and it ought to be. At the same time, the Gentiles will stream into the kingdom from every direction, east, west, north, south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, we will see by the end of this passage that Gentile inclusion does not signal Israeli exclusion. If you've never filed away that phrase before, you ought to. I learned this from Daryl Bach about three years ago. You want a rock-solid biblical truth to begin to understand the relationship between Israel and the church? Start here. Gentile inclusion does not mean Israeli exclusion. Now, at the same time, we want to be thoughtful and wise about how we apply this truth. Jews get saved the exact same way Gentiles get saved, and that would be by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if the Gospel of Luke has been clear about anything up to this point, it's, it's that one's ethnicity, one's Jewish ethnicity even, is never the ground of one's acceptance before a holy God. Uh, the, uh, the prophet John the Baptist taught us this all the way back in chapter 3. Listen to John as he lights up the crowds in Luke chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says to the Jewish people, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from the stones children that belong to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
So here's, here's the deal. At chapter 13, verse 31, at that very hour, the very hour that the, Jesus is teaching the Jews about Gentile inclusion, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. Now the term Pharisee is used 27 times in Luke's Gospel. 27 times. And did you know that not one of those times is positive? Not once. Verse 31 doesn't appear to be any exception to that rule. The Pharisees, religious leaders among the first century Jews, clashed with Jesus constantly. They objected to his healings. We've seen that. They objected to his teachings. We've seen that. And they, reject, they rejected and objected to his relationships. We've seen that as well. And you better believe that no love was lost on the side of our Lord toward these folks either. Jesus resisted them. He showered woes upon them. And he warned his disciples of them. And here in verse 31, we have what appears to be the Pharisees offering Jesus a word of caution, even a word of care. Isn't that what it kind of sounds like on the surface of it? Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, there's nothing in their disposition toward Jesus to this point in Luke's gospel that would persuade us that they're actually reaching out in genuine concern or empathy for him. Jesus has already rendered swift and severe judgment upon them so that this warning, I think anybody would have to conclude, is probably rather self-serving. These Jewish leaders hate Jesus and they want him out of the land. Their basic posture toward him is summed up in the first half of what they say in verse 31. Get away from here. That's what they want. And the means they're going to use to get that done is by saying that Herod wants to kill you. Now, whether or not Herod actually wanted to kill Jesus is, is questionable at best, especially at this point. Herod was curious about Jesus, but it doesn't seem that we have any cause to believe he had a death wish for him. Um, in fact, when Jesus finally stands before Herod in chapter 23, verse 8, the text explicitly says that Herod was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping that some sign would be done by him. Now Jesus doesn't answer Herod's questions, much less perform any miracles on command. And so that's why Herod's tone changes and eventually the soldiers mock him and they send him back to, to Pilate for the word of execution. But the claim that from the Pharisees that Herod wanted to kill him seems strained at best. It's also clear that Herod doesn't get Jesus. I mean, he's not considering following Jesus, and Jesus knows it. So verse 32, Jesus tells the Pharisees to give Herod a message. Verse 32, we read, he says to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Quick note on timeline. I've been pondering on this. I think Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. Um, he's not saying he's three days from Jerusalem. There's, there's far more to be accomplished between this moment and uh, the triumphal entry. He, he is saying that those days are rapidly approaching and he will not be threatened by Herod or the Pharisees, but rather he will complete the mission his father has given him. I will be undeterred from my path toward Jerusalem is what he's saying. You can't stop this. Now what's interesting is that Jesus calls Herod a fox, doesn't he? In this context, that likely points to the fact that, as the commentaries say, that Herod was a deceiver. He was a person of cunning. You could even take this word to mean a destroyer, like a fox in the hen house. 
In fact, that makes perfect sense because he's going to refer to his people as his brood that he wants to gather under his wings. I never saw that until right now. He's a, he's a destroyer. A fox was an image of all of those things in the first century and to some degree even today. So suffice it to say, here, here's the point of point one. Uh, neither the Pharisees nor Herod are in a positive light here. Nevertheless, both of them could claim Abraham as their father. What this points to is the first of our three points of application. If we desire to have Christian convictions about Israel, we are wise to consider Christ's convictions about Israel. And the first rock-solid biblical truth that every Christ follower ought to hold about ancient, God's ancient covenant people is that not all Israel is Israel. See Exhibit A in verses 31 and 32. The Apostle Paul makes this point in a couple of key places in his letter to the Romans. Uh, for instance, Romans chapter 2 Verses 28 and 29, Paul declares, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit. And then later on in in Romans 9, 6, Paul just comes right out and says it in no uncertain terms, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So there's no doubt that among those whom fell in this category would be the majority of the Pharisees in the first century alongside King Herod. Which brings us to a a current day application. Not all Israel is Israel. In one sense, we need to bear this in mind as we consider Israel as a 21st century political national entity. Not all Israel is Israel. It's not our role as responsibility as Christians or Americans to baptize every single decision this people makes. Now, they are a miracle people. I believe their existence in the land we are wise to see as a fulfillment of ancient biblical prophecy. God has clear designs on them in the last days. Nevertheless, this does not put Israel above the fray of of the law in matters of justice or diplomacy. Israel is not the kingdom of God. They are not some sort of corporate King Midas. Everything that they touches does not turn to gold. They're not a perfect nation. And far more importantly for Scripture, they are an incredibly stubborn nation. And until or unless they recognize Jesus as their Messiah as the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, the only one whom they can be saved, they will be lost and utterly damned forever. There's not a second covenant waiting out there for the Israelites. It's only one covenant through Jesus, the new covenant. Some of us here this morning are just like Israel. We don't replace Israel, but we do reflect her. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Uh, consider the stubbornness and the blindness of the Pharisees and Herod as a cautionary tale. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus today before the door to the banquet hall of the kingdom is slammed in your face. The first truth we need to get crystal clear on in our minds as we are seeking to discern the Savior's convictions about Israel is that not all Israel is Israel. Now, the second point flows from the first. Every Christ follower ought to hold about God's covenant people. Here's the second point. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Jesus continues, starting in verse 33. Nevertheless, 
I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. Now, we'll hold up the reading right there for the sake of this point. We're going to save the last phrase for point three. If we desire to have Christian convictions about Israel, we are wise to consider Christ's convictions about Israel. Number one, not all Israel is Israel. And number two, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Well, that's, that's an understatement based on what Jesus says here. It's transparent enough from this passage, isn't it? Their hearts are hard toward Christ. They are tough, tough soil for the seed of God's Word. Verse 33, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. That's an awfully dismal track record. They are their prophets after all. Perhaps it's also why Jesus remained unmoved by the Pharisees' warning. Jesus isn't in Jerusalem at this point, so He's perfectly safe. He's somewhere north in Galilee. He's safe as a kitten. It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So dangerous is this city to a true prophet of God. At the same time, you get the sense from verse 34 that Jesus' relationship with his people is anything but simple, right? Truth be told, he has a rather complicated relationship with his ethnic brothers and sisters. Verse 34 contains what has got to be one of the tenderest appeals in all of the Bible in the midst of one of the most scathing assessments in all of the Bible. It's amazing that Jesus can hold all of this in his heart and in his head. Verse 34, he laments, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Every time you hear a word uh, repeated, a name like that repeated in the Bible, take it to the bank, it's affectionate. Think of David with Absalom. O Absalom, Absalom, my son. Or Jesus to Martha in chapter 10. Martha, Martha, right? This is affection. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. The image is jarring, isn't it? he, He couldn't be, on the one hand, more nurturing and delicate toward them if he tried. He's picturing himself as a mother hen brooding over her nest, over her chicks, This visual illustration of God as mother bird is relatively common in the Old Testament. Uh, So we read of God in Deuteronomy 32, 11, like an eagle stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Or in Ruth 2, 12, Boaz says to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And that is not to say anything of Psalm 17, 36, 57, 61, 63, 91. All picture God as a mother bird over Israel. Tender, affectionate. It's a picture that the Pharisees would have been all too familiar with. They would have known what Jesus was claiming about himself here. Jesus has a tender heart toward this people. In the second place, Jesus is perfectly clear as to their character and uniquely to their prickly disposition toward him. Verse 34, they're the city that kills the prophets, 
stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. Commenting on this verse, Daryl Bach observes, God's constant desire is to intimately care for, to nurture and protect his people. Only one thing stopped God from exercising such care. The people did not wish him to do so. I think at this point we, we don't lack for parallels in our own culture, in our own situation as well. We don't replace Israel, but we do reflect her constantly. And it is the case that God is sovereign in salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. The Lord grants repentance and faith. And yet it's also true that we are responsible to repent and believe. And if you don't want Jesus, you won't have him. He'll give you what you want. And the frightening result of their unbelief and their rejection of Christ, at least in large measure, is his own rejection of them. Verse 35 begins with these sobering words about Jesus, uh, from Jesus about Israel. Behold, your house is forsaken. And if it weren't for what Jesus is going to finish saying in verse 35, we would be very tempted to imagine that this is it. Jesus is just throwing in the towel with his people. That there's simply no future for this people group. Jesus is washing his hands of the Jews entirely and shutting them out of all possibility of redemption, restoration, and salvation. And yet that's not what this is. Uh, Devastating, as Jesus' words are in verse 35, they are not without hope, as we shall soon see. And Paul teaches the exact same thing. That's why we want to pause here on this, on this point. Paul says the exact same thing in Romans 11.25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, it sounds like a bit of an understatement to me, but it's a partial hardening. It's not a total hardening, though. There has always been and will continue to be a remnant chosen by grace despite the fact what Jesus says is true in verse 35. Their house is forsaken. There always has remained a minority report, a number of Jews in every age that have responded to Jesus as Messiah by grace through faith. They've responded favorably to the message of the gospel. In the cities, we find them worshiping at Seed of Abraham Messianic Congregation in Plymouth or Sar Shalom Messianic Jewish Community in St. Louis Park or Tabernacle of David in Burnsville. There's a remnant. Nevertheless, what Jesus says here in verse 35, by and large, is the story of most Jews relative to the gospel to this day. Behold, your house is forsaken. And friends, this is what ought to grieve us deeply. I mean, does it lie within your emotional bandwidth to grieve over the massive rejection of this people of their Savior? Clearly it did for Jesus, and it did for Paul too. Listen to Paul in Romans 9.1. I always want to take Romans 9.1 and just translate it to me and my list of five or my family or people that I want to see come to know Jesus. But if we wouldn't do violence to this text, we need to understand who Paul is weeping over. Romans 9.1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. 
and to them belong. Notice it's not past tense, belonged. To them currently belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So while it it explains a great deal of of Jewish unbelief all among us, um, it ought to bother us profoundly just as it did Jesus, just as it did Paul. Does it bother you at all? You might have this sort of heart for folks on your list of five, but do you have this sort of heart toward Israel? If we desire to have Christian convictions about Israel, then we are wise to consider Christ's convictions about Israel. So second rock-solid biblical truth that every Christ follower ought to hold about God's ancient covenant people, a partial hardening has come upon Israel and we ought to weep over it. All right, one final point and this one's mega encouraging. Third rock-solid biblical truth that every Christ follower ought to hold about God's ancient covenant people. One day, all Israel will be saved. One day, all Israel will be saved saved. Now, verse 35 begins rather desperately, admittedly, for the Jewish people, but it doesn't end that way. As a matter of fact, properly understood, what Jesus is saying here in verse 35 is undeniable evidence of his unbounded hope in their conversion and their worshipful recognition of who he is as their Messiah. Verse 35, Jesus says of Jerusalem, and by implication all Israel, the city Jerusalem is going to be emblematic of the entire nation here in this passage. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now one thing we need to clear up is that Luke 19.38 is not the proper fulfillment of this verse. You could flip there if you want to see what I'm talking about. In Luke 19, 38, Luke 19, we see the account of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. There he's riding the colt into the city and the disciples cry out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Is that not what Jesus said they would say? When they saw him again? Well, more or less. But Luke 19.38 doesn't exhaust this prophecy. You want to know why? Luke 13 occurs several weeks prior to the triumphal entry. Jesus didn't just say this once in his ministry. He said it at least twice, possibly more often than that. So on one level, it seems that what Jesus predicts in Luke 13.35 should be understood as properly fulfilled in Luke 19.38. The problem with that theory is that Jesus says it again. And he says it after the triumphal entry in Matthew 23.37-39. Matthew 23.37-39 is nearly a word-for-word replication of what Jesus says here back in Luke 13.35. The only difference is that Jesus says, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says that to them in Luke 13 before the triumphal entry. Whereas in Matthew 23, he specifically says it to them after the triumphal entry. A full two chapters after they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Haven't they already said it to him? Well, as far as Jesus is concerned, they're not 
going to say it to him like they will one day. In Luke 13, 35, Jesus says of Jerusalem, and I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is drawn from Psalm 118, verse 26. And the immediate context of Psalm 118, verse 26, outlines the people of Israel's reception of their Messiah after their rejection of him. Psalm 118, beginning in verse 22. Familiar verse here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. So you you see what Jesus is ultimately saying? In Luke 13, 35, here's how one commentator put it. Christ taught that the nation of Israel would not see him again after his departure until they could genuinely offer these words to him at his second coming. And not only that, but the Bible is loaded with clear affirmations that one day Israel will recognize her Messiah. You think about hardness of heart of people in your own family that you pray for, children, or parents, and you think, how long can they be hard-hearted toward the Lord? Imagine millennia, okay? This is a long time for them to be hard toward their Savior. But they will recognize their Messiah one day. Zechariah 12.10, the Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Do you hear what Zechariah said? They will look on me whom they have pierced. It's a stunning prophecy about their eventual reception of their crucified Messiah. And then if that weren't enough, we have Romans 11. We always have Romans 11. If there ever were a chapter of the Bible that spoke of a future of salvation of Israel, it's Romans 11. In Romans 11, Paul ponders out loud about the Jewish people. He says this, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass has come to the Gentiles as to make Israel jealous. Now their trespass means riches for the world. What will their... uh, If their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead if they do not continue in their own unbelief? They will be grafted in again, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary into a culted olive cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree, lest you be wise in your own conceits? I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. And he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, so, so what's the point? The point is that if we desire to have Christ, about Christian convictions about Israel, we ought to consider Christ's convictions about Israel. 
which included convictions concerning their full salvation as the deliverer when he, as their deliverer, returns. We should care about the future salvation of Israel. He's made promises to them. And if he is capable of breaking his promises to them, what would possess us to imagine that he would preserve his promises to us, Gentiles though we are? As Paul says in Romans eleven eighteen, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. We have a vested interest in the root making it all the way to salvation. And we ought to be hopeful and forward-looking for the return of our Savior for a million reasons, not the least of which is the future massive conversion of his ancient covenant people who will be alive at the time of his return. So Mount Evangelical Free Church, believe it. One day, all Israel will be saved. Well, let's review. If we desire to have Christian convictions about Israel, we are wise to consider Christ's convictions about Israel. Three rock-solid biblical truths that every Christ follower ought to hold about God's ancient covenant people. Number one, not all Israel is Israel. Number two, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And number three, all Israel one day will be saved. So not all Israel is Israel. So be, be discerning. Be discerning in your understanding of how this all plays out in 21st century geopolitics. Be careful. Second, partial hardening has come upon Israel. So be, be realistic. Realistic about the difficulty of Jewish evangelism on the one hand, as well as resolute in your commitment to Jewish evangelism on the other. The hardening is only partial. There's always a remnant in every generation who would respond to Jesus as Messiah. And finally, one day all Israel will be saved. So, so be encouraged. When Christ returns, he will pour out, the Bible says, on the house of David, a spirit of grace and supplication, pleas for mercy. He will take away their blindness. And if he can do that for Israel, he can do that for you. He can do that for the people that you're praying for on your list of five. Blindness is not an obstacle to the Lord. And we're going to see it. A conversion coming the likes of which has never been seen on this earth. One day it's coming. Be encouraged. One day all Israel will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, the fact that the Scriptures lead this church and that wherever they go any given Sunday it is our great desire to hear the full counsel of God and Lord I don't know how it is that for so long some 17 years I could have walked with Jesus and not seen or maybe just not cared about these truths how odd how wrong given that my Savior and my treasure and Lord is a Jew with a heart really wide open for his people and yet realistic about their hardening, about the fact that there's an Israel within Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Lord, help us to be hopeful people. Grant that we would be about the mission of being and making disciples of Jesus today because when the fullness of Gentiles comes in, this is going to happen. So Lord, may we be about the business this week this Memorial Day weekend and the week stretched out in front of us to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ in the West Tonka area today and in the days ahead. May we see the fullness of the Gentiles coming and may our church play its modest part in that goal. When that happens, it's the beginning of the very best for Israel will respond to her Messiah as the Messiah himself comes 
and the kingdom begins. And your reign, Lord Jesus, will have no end on that day. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.